this sounds like art. 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 Art and his take on it. I'm an artist of liberation. Everybody wants to be an artist. Art history. Art history. The making of art. Art history with Lorraine Kipiotis. Tonight on Nightlife, we're mixing art and passion once again with our resident art historian, Lorraine Kipiotis from the National Art School, who joins us about once a month to talk art. We've been talking recently about artistic couples, uh, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. We talked about uh, Vasily Kandinsky and Gabrielle Munter. Tonight, Lorraine's bringing you the story of Lee Miller, the American Vogue model who later ended up being a World War II correspondent and her relationship with surrealist photographer Man Ray. Lorraine, this was another one of these very passionate uh, relationships, perhaps destructively so at times. Yes, absolutely, Suzanne. It's interesting when you look at the uh, collaborations between uh, couples in the art world because sometimes they work really well you know, and there's a bit, a little bit of friction, you know, when we talked about Frida and Diego, of course, they did work really well together, but again, you know, their passions took them all over the place. Um, but then, you know, I think about other couples like uh, Jean-Claude and Christo who worked their entire lives together and collaborated beautifully. Mm. And then there's, you know, people like Lee Miller and Man Ray who stay together for a short time, really influence each other's works. But uh, because of their passion and perhaps because of their jealousy and drive, they're also, you know, sort of, you know, driven apart mm. at some stage. Yeah. All right. Now let's start with Lee Miller. Who was she? How did she come to be noticed? Oh, Lee Miller had the most incredible... Incredible arc, Suzanne. Basically, uh, when she was 19 years old, this is back in 1927, uh, she got her first break when she was actually crossing the street in New York and there was a car heading straight for her as she stepped down into the traffic and she was actually pulled back onto the curb by another pedestrian. It happened, just happened to be the magazine publisher Condé Nast. (laughs) Now, you know, of course, it's a huge corporation, Condé Nast, you know, all those magazines. But at the time, this was the actual man, the publisher himself. Mr. Condé Nast, right. Mr. Condé Nast, too, uh, had just sort of started publishing the magazine Vogue, American Vogue. And so uh, he loved her look. You know, she was very tall, lithe, you know, blue eyes, short, cropped, blonde hair. She had basically, in the words of Condé Nast, the look of the moment. Hmm. So, you know, he quickly got her into modelling. She ended up being on the, you know, covers of Vogue, of Harper's Bazaar. She became one of the greatest uh, talents of that particular era uh, and was photographed by, you know, Edward Steichen, Cecil Beaton, all the great photographers. But she also, of course, got to hang out at some uh, amazing jazz age parties and, you know, hung out with people like Charlie Chaplin, Fred Astaire, Josephine Baker, you know, Dorothy Parker. Oh, wow. Um, But... Of course, it was not enough for her. She was a young woman with incredible drive and after two years of modelling, she decided that she actually wanted to become a photographer herself. Had she had any exposure to that prior to becoming a model or was it sort of doing the modelling and having these people photograph her that made her think, No, I think once again, and like, you know, a few people we've spoken about, her dad also dabbled in a bit of photography. So she had a little bit of a background in it. But, um, you know, she'd experienced it from the model's end and she thought she could also, you know, be a photographer. So um, what she does is uh, Edward Steichen, one of the photographers who uh, had been, you know, shooting her, had shown her the work, the very innovative work of Man Ray, who was a, uh, I'm going to describe him as a surrealist photographer. He was Mm -hmm. now living in Paris at this stage. And so she decided to go there and find him and become his apprentice. 
Okay. Wow. Now, the her departure from New York was kind of dramatic. Tell us about that. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Because, of course, you know, everyone was in love with Lee Miller because <laughs> she was such a bright young yeah. thing, of course. And she had these two bows who uh, literally flipped a coin to see who would get to see her off at the boat. So uh, one of them, uh, you know, won. So she had the two at the same time yeah, and they and, were okay with that. And they were okay that. with that. Okay. So, you know, how remember, the, the this era is the jazz rolled. age. Yeah. Different era. So, you know, that was all okay. And uh, so off she goes on the boat and the one that won, he was a, a producer of Broadway theatre, Dele Agri, watched her sail down the Hudson, you know, on a, in the morning sun. But not long after that, he looks up into the sky and he sees his rival, who's a young pilot, swoop down over the boat and let out a shower of roses <laughs> onto the boat deck. So, you know, this incredible drama as she's leaving. Now, what was really sad about that, that she didn't find out till later, was that that young Canadian flyer went back to the airfield to pick up his pupil because he gave lessons, mm-hmm. uh, only to have his plane spin on the ground on takeoff, killing himself and the student. He so- literally drew the roses and then... There and crashed. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's terrible. I know. Full of drama. And her life continued to be full of drama. So so she gets to Paris um, and she she didn't find it that easy to to find Man Ray at first. Tell me about this. No, she tracked him around the city for several weeks. Uh, She finally found out which apartment building he was staying in, goes there only to be told by the concierge that he's already left for Biarritz on Mm. holidays. Um, she's really peeved. She walks into the closest cafe, which is Le Bateau Yves, you know, sits down to order something and sees Man Ray walk into the cafe. So she immediately, you know, waits, wait, waits till he's settled, but mm-hmm. then immediately goes up to his table, corners him and says, my name's Lee Miller and I'm your new student. Okay. And he says... And he says, well, actually, no, I don't take on um, students and I'm heading off to Biarritz tomorrow. And she said, well, so am I. <laughs> and that was that. That was that. Okay. All right. So give us some background, Lorraine, on Man Ray. Tell us a bit about what he'd been doing up until this moment when he meets Lee Miller. Sure, sure. Man Ray, uh, he was actually born uh, Michael Emmanuel Radnitsky, but adopted the pseudonym Man Ray, Emmanuel, Man and Radinsky. Um got shortened to Ray as early as 1909 when he was about 19. And, you know, he actually spent a lot of his time making art in New York and actually turned down a scholarship uh, to study architecture in order to devote himself to painting. But he eventually became known, Suzanne, and as I'm sure many of the listeners know, as one of the most versatile and innovative artists of the 20th century. You know, he was a writer, a painter, a sculptor, a photographer, a filmmaker, and he was probably best known for his association with the French Surrealist group because he does end up, you know, as we've said, moving to Paris during the 20s and 30s, you know, and working there with the Surrealists. Mm, Okay. So he taught himself photography, didn't he? Yes, yes, yes. He taught himself photography and, in fact, uh, his world and Lee Miller's world were not that far removed because he was actually also doing a lot of fashion photography and portrait photography to fund his artistic work. So, you know, during the 20s and 30s, he'd photographed Peggy Guggenheim, um, the collections of Coco Chanel, Elsa Schiaparelli, Mainbocker, you know, and photographed all the major magazines, Vogue, Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like their worlds of fashion and art collided. Yeah, they almost should have met each other before that moment, shouldn't yeah. they? Now, he was influenced by an exhibition or called the Armoury Show in 1913. What was this? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, 
you've got to remember that everything was happening in Europe at this time, all of those incredible early 20th century modern art movements. And so the Armoury Show is, um, it's also known as the International Exhibition of Modern Art, but it was shown at a place called the Armoury, so mm-hmm. got shortened to the Armoury Show. But it was organised by uh, the Association of American Painters and Sculptors, and it was the first large-scale exhibition of modern art in America. Oh, wow. So, you know, he goes mm. to this exhibition in 1913. He sees what's happening in Europe. He's already dabbling in this sort of, you know, surrealist and Dada work, but he thinks, okay, this is it. This is the place where, you know, where I want to be. So his art from, you know, painting changes slightly and he starts dabbling in things like collage, which Picasso's, you know, Mm. has been dabbling in, you know, as well, and Matisse, you know, all of those great artists and, you know, produces some works, but he produces them almost by accident. And I think this is um, quite, you know, uh, indicative of his work that sometimes he starts to make out something and, in fact, Lee Miller's work. And then an accident happens, a, you know, a lucky chance accident, and they, their work changes. So mm. he's trying to make this collage. He's, you know, cutting out paper. He's sticking it down onto his support, and then he's throwing away the other bits of paper on the floor. He looks at what he's made, not satisfied with it, happens to glance down at the floor with all these bits of scraps of paper and thinks, oh, actually, I really love that work <laughs> on the floor. And that becomes the work. Yeah. No, I love it. So he sees this exhibition and he sort of thinks this is where it's at and we're going to establish New York data. But he found that he felt he needed to do that in, in Europe. Take us through that process he yeah, went through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, he's in New York. He is making works. He's, you know, he also dabbles in things called assemblages, which now are pretty, I guess, mainstream. But this idea of taking everyday objects and putting them mm. all together to create something new. Um and it was, you know, Dada, that's what he was drawn to. He was drawn to Dada's experimentation. Dada's sort of a, a movement that's, uh, the art is very nonsensical or satirical and unexpected. You know, it's that idea of the unexpected, like Salvador Dali, you know, uh, does a telephone with a lobster as the telephone receiver, that kind of mm. um, art. But he felt that Dada's experimentation was no match for the, you know, the wild and chaotic streets of New York at this particular time. And there's a great quote where he says, you know, Dada cannot live in New York because all of New York is Dada <laughs> itself and will not tolerate a rival. So then he planned to move to Paris. Okay, let's take it to Paris. Um, Lorraine Kipiotis is here. You're on Nightlife uh, on ABC Radio. Suzanne Hill with you on this Saturday night. And Lorraine is from the National Art School and a regular art historian here. And so in 1922, he came up with something called a rayogram. Clearly, he liked to name things after himself. But what yes. was this? Yeah, and again, he came uh, came uh, to this process quite unwittingly as well after uh, inadvertently turning on a light in the dark room, mm. um, he had acci- found he'd accidentally placed some objects on some uh, developing paper, on a piece of photographic paper. And, of course, by turning the light on, you start to develop that paper. So, you know, again, uh, rayograms, rayographs, um, photograms, as they're called, he, he decided to rename mm. them in his honour, of course. <laughs> Um, we've seen them all and, in fact, kids often do these in high school, you know, uh, in photography and it's just placing everyday objects on a piece of photographic paper and looking at, the, you know, the chance arrangement of these particular objects. But, you know, he loved this new technique and, and he often um, equated it with painting, stating that what he was doing was painting with light. 
Wow. No, I like that sound. Yeah. Uh, what did his love life been like up until the time he met oh. Miller? Probably tumultuous even before her. Absolutely, absolutely. By the time he meets Lee Miller, he's already been married to the Belgian poet Adon Lacroix. That was in 1914. But he's had this continuous stream of, you know, tempestuous and often doomed romances. <laughs> um, and probably not least of all with the very, very famous performer in Paris, Kiki of Montparnasse. And, in fact, he produced this very famous image of uh, Kiki. It's called Le Violin de Ong. And it shows her back almost, well, it's designed to be as a cello. So it's got the little, and I don't know the name for these, the little holes in the cello, oh. the sound holes mm-hmm. on the back of uh Someone of will know. Someone will know, I'm sure, what that's called. But for years, Kiki was his model, his muse, his lover, but they'd had a lot of really, really fiery scenes. You know, he, she was jealous, he was jealous. She would often, you know, uh, walk into the cafe where he was, you know, ferociously hurling abuse at him, throwing plates at Man Ray. Um <laughs> But once he meets Lee Miller, has to get rid of Kiki, so quickly disposes of her, finds mm. this amazing new muse. and But someone who's not just a muse and a lover, but someone who would really rival him in the world of photography. Mm. Okay, so tell me about the, the sort of the early stage of this relationship of and them working together. Well, um, it was interesting because I think I feel sometimes that they were made for each other. There were incredible similarities between the two. You know, uh, Man Ray had a way of making everything new and worth considering, worth pondering. He had this insatiable curiosity, as did she, but she also had this incredible drive. You know, she'd already had the drive to be, you know, a model and made a success of that. Now she had this drive to create works. She made a number of self-portraits. He was doing photographs as well of portraiture. Um, she took on uh, a lot of the work that she felt that Man Ray was beneath Man Ray, mm-hmm. his minor assignments, so he could concentrate on his more important work. But in the meantime, she was also creating work. So one of the things that they uh, discovered together, although there's some contention as to whether Lee Miller discovered it or Man Ray, but I think it was you know very much a collaboration and an accidental collaboration, was a process named solarization which sort of gives a photograph uh, of anyone that you've, you've taken the photograph of, this sort of very, very dark outline. It looks almost ghostly. Mm-hmm. And uh, she spoke about it many years ago because it's an exposure mistake. So um, she was actually exposing something in the uh, uh, the dark room, but all of a sudden she felt something crawl across her leg. She never found out what it was, with a mouse, cockroach, goodness oh. knows. But um, she quickly realised that uh, the film was overexposed. Mm-hmm. She'd left it in the development tank. So um, she sort of t- had taken it out, but then the light came on to it. And it's basically the process of uh, a half-developed photo then being uh, exposed to more light and it gives this, you know, dark effect around the image. So, um, you know, this was something completely new. And so they took a whole lot of photos. You know, this was around 19, uh, in the late 1920s, early 30s. Man Ray did, does his self-portrait with a camera in 1932 in a solarised print. Um, you know, she's producing all of this avant-garde work, taking on all of uh, his work, but things start to fall apart. Yeah, because he's a jealous man too, isn't he, particularly when it comes to Lee Miller. 
Absolutely. Incredibly jealous. There was uh, one particular episode where she's asked to buy another surrealist um, writer and filmmaker, Jean Cocteau, to star in his film. And uh, she plays the part of sort of like a Venus de Milo with no arms, but a statue that comes to life. And uh, it's the film's called The Blood of the Poet. And Man Ray was enraged because, you know, she's his muse, not Cocteau's muse. And Cocteau was one of his artistic rivals. But, um, you know, uh, and, you know, basically approaches uh, Jean Cocteau and says, you don't lend out your mistresses to other people, do you? Ooh, you know, so yeah. it was, you know, it was on for one and all. But Is the film any good? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 weird, as all surrealist movies yeah. are. But, you know, she comes to life, you know, she talks to the poet. Um, but basically it was quite a taxing role because it, she plays an armless classical statue, so it required her to have her arms, you know, mm. strapped down in the side and wear sort of a, this uncomfortable paper mache attachment to her and, uh, you know, paper mache wig so she looked like a statue and being covered in white paint the entire time. So. Now, there's another story, Lorraine, where Miller fishes a photograph out of the bin that Man Ray had put there. What what happened? Yes, yes, yes. This was another, you know, contentious issue. Um, Man Ray had taken a beautiful photo of Lee Miller's very swan-like neck and mm-hmm. he'd called it floating, uh, floating neck basically, but he wasn't happy with it so he'd thrown it out. She came in, she retrieved it from the bin, she cropped it into a work of her own. She was really happy with it, remade it into a print, enhanced it, showed it to him. He was outraged because, you know, she claimed now it was her work because Mm. she'd changed it. He claimed it was his work because he had taken the photo, throws her out of the studio um, and a few hours later she returns to see the image pinned to the wall. He's slashed the picture's throat, so essentially (sighs) Lee Miller's throat, with a razor and splattered streams of red ink onto it. But then later he changes it again, incorporates the image into one of his uh, paintings, Le Logis de l'Artiste, or Home of the Artist, which actually, feel, you know, focuses on that beautiful neck of hers as well as a lot of the clutter in um, in the studio. So, is, is that in a gallery today somewhere to see? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry I don't know which gallery, but um, it's it's basically called Le Logis de l'Artiste, the Home of the Artist. Wow. All right. Then you can go and think about where that neck's been throughout the whole process. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So things came to an end, though, because Miller then met an older Egyptian man. So tell yeah, us about yeah, what, yeah. what happened she, then. She was basically introduced to Aziz Eloi Bey, and uh, he was a very rich Egyptian. He was already married, of course. Mm. He, his wife, Nimit, was a, a, quite a celebrated beauty herself and, in fact, had been rated one of the top five most beautiful women wow. in the world. And she'd also modelled for both Man Ray and, um, and Lee Miller. But um, sadly, after the beginning of uh, the, the love affair with um, Eloi Bey, Aziz Bey, um, the wife uh, basically over a couple of weeks drinks herself to death. What? Oh, so, gosh. you know, they're, they're leaving this, you know, swathe of uh, tragedies, yeah. you know. Uh, and Man Ray was pretty distraught as well. He what did he do? incredibly distraught. He actually threatens to do the same, basically, you know, commit suicide and, you know, even goes as far as taking a picture of himself holding a pistol with a rope around his neck and, um, you know, recollecting whether he was undecided whether to use the pistol on himself or on Lee or on her new lover. But, you know... For weeks he went on these, you know, mad ravings and sulking and eventually Lee leaves him. She can't stand it. She's exasperated by his possessiveness. He's She's tired of both he and Aziz and leaves Paris for New York, goes mm. back. And what happens to uh, Aziz Bay? 
Oh, well, you know, he sort of goes back to Egypt, but he tracks her down in New York eventually. Mm. So, you know, a little while later he turns up in New York, proposes to her, and she says, yes, I'll marry you. Oh, okay. All right, so they end up getting married, but then in the meantime poor Man Ray's left there in Paris with his despair, but that actually inspired him to produce some of his best work. Oh, absolutely, and I think these are the sorts of works that we remember Man Ray by. Um, One of them is uh, this this, uh, he draws a face. First of all, he draws a face over and over and over again, you know, obsessively and, you know, sends her uh, images of it, writes poems to her and um, encloses images of her eye. Then he makes this object. It's called the indestructible object, which is ironic because we'll see what happens to it in a minute. Um, And it's a metronome. You know, those metronomes that you put on top of pianos to keep time? For yourself, but what he does is uh, on the, uh, the the lever of the metronome, he attaches an image of her eye, and uh, he used to say that he would use. He's a, he made an original version in 1922, then changes it in 1932 after Lee Miller leaves him by putting her eye on. But he used to say that he'd put the metronome on. And whilst it was clicking, he'd start painting. And then by the time it stopped, it meant that he should stop painting and that the painting would be finished. So again, and how long of, does the metronome click well, for? For whenever, I don't know, not too long. But it was also this idea of leaving up the painting up to chance, yeah. you know. Oh, whatever had happened by the time it ran out. Yeah. Okay, so what happened to it? Oh, well, okay, so he puts Lee's eye on it. Then he, in 1932, he publishes a drawing of it and he uh, also publishes what instructions on what one should do with it. So he says, you know, cut out the eye from a portrait of one who's been loved but is seen no more. Attach the eye to the pendulum of the metronome. Regulate the weight to suit the temper desired. Keep it going. And then with a hammer, well aimed, try to destroy the whole thing in a single <laughs> blow. So he smashes his own work, completely destroys it. Um, but has left instructions on how to make more. So replicas were made, you know, right, further down the track. Wow. Yeah, wow. and oh, interestingly, okay. um, Suzanne, in, a, in an exhibition in 1957, a group of protesting and anarchic students actually took Man Raider's word by mm. destroying the copy that was, uh, oh. yeah, that had been made. And Man Ray then went on to actually make several more copies. So there and are it, several more yes, yes. around and he today? essentially, and he also, after they uh, reconciled, presented one to Lee Miller later. In life. Oh, so a reconciliation is, is coming. Yes. Because so he stayed obsessed with her. He didn't just sort oh. of uh, get over it easily, no. did he? No, no. And, you know, he, she, he redrew her lips and painted her lips over and over and over again and, in fact, turned them into one of his most well-known works called Observatory Time or The Lovers. And it's quite a huge work where her lips, her disembodied lips are literally hovering over the landscape which features the Paris Observatory. Um, and yeah, just, you know, he keeps thinking about her over and over and over again. Meanwhile, she's doing fine. (laughs) She goes to New York before she marries, uh, as is bad, goes to New York, starts her own photographic studio with her brother, um, with a bit of help from her, you know, Condé Nast connections, goes into, uh, you know, the world of fashion photography when she's taking the photos herself. And, you know, by 1934, her name appears on Vanity Fair's list of the most distinguished living photographers. Wow. Okay. So then Aziz uh, Eloise Bay turns up, they get married, but that one doesn't last long either, does no, it? No, really? no. She moves to Cairo with him, but then she finds Cairo high society quite stifling. And uh, she 
decides to spend time in Paris alone. She, of course, arrives. She's got a lot of friends there. She's immediately invited to a costume ball thrown by her surrealist friends. It's the first time she sees Man Ray in five years, which is really important. Um, They do reconcile at that party. He's, of course, with someone else now. But she also Reconciled in terms of what, just, you know, become civil? Civil (laughs) Civil to each other. Right, not not a resumption of the previous passion. That's right. No no hammers were involved in the reconciliation or, yeah. So all good. And, but most importantly, she actually meets another man. She meets the English surrealist and collector Roland Penrose. Um, And he's completely smitten. With her, he uh, he actually after the party asks their friend Max Ernst, who knows you know he's a mutual friend. Mm. Max Ernst is also a surrealist artist, and um, you know asks him if he knows Lee Miller. Of course, everyone knows Lee Miller, and uh, and Max Ernst says, "Oh, let's invite her over for dinner tomorrow night." So they did. Uh, Lee and Penrose become inseparable over the next few weeks. And they, you know, they stay on in Paris. They then head off to England along with Man Ray and his new girlfriend from Martinique, Addie. They stay there and then they all decide to uh, reassemble down in the south of France along with Max Ernst and his um, uh, lady at the time, Leonora Carrington, who, again, was a famous surrealist in her own right. Mm. So they're all there. But, of course... Yes, 1939 comes, war breaks out. And so when World War II comes along, um, Lee Miller's obviously got all this experience as a photographer and she wants to be a war correspondent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, she's in England at the time and so she goes to Vogue and asks can she go and take some photos and Vogue magazine sent her across as a a war correspondent but basically to to interview women, to interview the nurses, you know, find out what's happening, the sort of fashion and still they still want her to cover fashion, you know, in Paris and all the rest of it. But she wants to take, you know, cutting edge life photos. So she does. She ends up sending photos back of, you know, badly burnt soldiers, faces covered with bandages. She sends one back of a dead soldier floating in the river. Really hard edge stuff. So she starts to make a name for herself as a, um, you know, a hard edge war correspondent. That's right. And she, she's actually one of six accredited war correspondents by 1942 and the only woman photo reporter who's active in combat areas. So yeah. this is a lot of boundary breaking. Now, tell us about the picture that she took in Hitler's oh, bathtub. This, this is a very, very famous image. She's, uh, she's doing a lot of work with um, a, a photographer called David Sherman and they, uh, at the end of the war, end up in Munich and they find, uh, uh, they find themselves in Hitler's private apartment um, and he decides, David Sherman and Lee Miller both decide that they were going to take a photo of her in the bathtub. So there's a photo of her naked in the bathtub um, with her mud-caked combat boots sitting in front on the bath mat and there's a small portrait of Hitler just in the corner. And that's the only thing that tells us it was actually Hitler's bathtub. Um, it was actually around the same, that same week, I think, that Hitler um, committed suicide that, oh you know, goodness. right at the end of the war. Just incredible stuff. And so by the time that the war ends, she's actually a bit of a wreck because she's seen so much and what she ends up getting arrested by Russian soldiers at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, she's over. She gets arrested by Russian, Russian soldiers. Um, she travels around. Uh, she finally returns home to England. But, yes, she's a wreck. She's, um, you know, on the verge of, I think, of having a mental breakdown. But, you know, a couple of years later... Um, she, at the age of, you know, I think she's 40 at this age, at this stage, she finds she's pregnant with uh, Roland Penrose's child. 
Okay. And so are they still together? They're still together. Okay. But there's a hitch. She's still married to Aziz Bey. Uh-huh. The whole time she hadn't divorced him. So basically, uh, you know, Bey agrees to the divorce. Miller gives birth to her son, Anthony Penrose. And, you know, she enters a whole new phase of her life, juggling, you know, fashion photography with uh, her new role, her motherhood role. Yeah. And so how much did she meet Man Ray again across the course of the rest of her oh, life? Oh, look, uh, Man Ray had fled to uh, L.A., at this stage, he'd lived in the USA. Mm. He'd uh, had a double wedding. He married Juliet Browner. Double wedding. Max Ernst married Dorothea Tanning. Uh, Man Ray marries Juliet Browner. They return to Europe in 1951. They eventually meet up, Lee Miller and Man Ray meet up in 1975 in London at his retrospective at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. By now, he was in a wheelchair. She was suffering from alcoholic abuse. Um, they were both still traumatised, I think. She's definitely traumatised by the things mm. she'd seen in the Second World War. Uh, and they reconciled completely, which was great because the following year Man Ray dies uh, in Montparnasse, very close to the studio they, that they both worked in. And she lived until 1977. Um, tell me about the, the photographs, though, that Lee Miller took. Uh, did many of them um, still exist? Where oh, can you yes, see those? yes, absolutely. Yeah? Um, she's become quite... Um, you know, a well-known photographer in her own right. And, in fact, there's been many books written about her, especially as the war correspondent and war photographer. And, in fact, Suzanne, I think a movie was released last year with Kate Winslet ah, as okay. Lee Miller, and it focuses on her years as a war correspondent. I think it's just called Lee. Mm. So, um, you know, well worth watching. All right. So there's uh, another tumultuous couple who uh, well, had a very fiery time together, but both left quite a significant body of work. Oh, then. definitely. And yes. a lot of it very much influenced by their time together. Lorraine, thank you for coming in. We will talk to you next time. Thanks, Suzanne. Lorraine Kipiotis, our resident art historian here on Nightlife on ABC Radio. ABC Radio. You're listening to Nightlife. Nightlife with Suzanne Hill.